Good morning, everyone. Thank you guys so much for showing up this morning. It's so good to see you. As Simon mentioned, my name is Justin Whitkoff. Um, I am the youth director here at Grace Hills. And as Simon already mentioned, I do have my family here as well. If you guys want to give a wave, you can. I just want to embarrass you in this moment. And some friends from Biola, they decided to take up a whole, a whole pew. And uh, yeah, if they don't applaud at the end, then they're not getting paid. So that's going to be <laughs> better get that standing ovation. Um, I am just so blessed to be here, and to be your guys' youth director has been the best job of my life. Um, it has been one of the greatest blessings that God has given me. Um, I get to, I had a lot of youth pastors that invested in me when I was uh, that age. Um, three of them, one of them is in this room, Simon himself, and it's just so awesome that I get to step into that role and pour that blessing back onto our students. And so we get to go paintballing, we get to go to the movies and to bowling and pool parties and all those things so that way we can bond together and share our lives with each other and talk about Jesus. So I love my job and I love being part of here. You're probably used to me coming up here and doing announcements, but like Simon mentioned, today I'm going into the word and I'm honored to do that today. But, um, before we begin, why don't I pray for us really quick? Dear Lord, I thank you for your blessings. I thank you for who you are. And I pray that in this moment, you would just bring peace to me, Lord, that you would still my heart and that you would speak through me. If there's any word that you don't want said, that you would take it out of my mouth, Lord. That your spirit would just be in this room not only in the communication, but also in the listening of your word. You name and pray. Amen. For those of you that don't know, we've been in a series called Interactions or Conversations with Jesus. And it's been, I love this series because we've got to look at different characters in the Bible. And I've gotten to see them and kind of relate to them and, and ask myself the question, if Jesus was in front of me, what would he say to me? I see what they said to them. I can relate to some of what their life was like. But what would Jesus say to me, and I think that's a conversation that we've asked ourselves over and over as we've gone through this study, and this is the last series of that, and today, I want you guys to ask yourself the question, if Jesus was in front of you, what would you say to him? Because we're going to see in this story that there's going to be 10 people who had Jesus right in front of them, but there was different reactions to them, and so I want to jump into our passage, which is going to be Luke 17, 11 through 13. So I'll give you guys a moment to get there. I'm already there because I'm so prepared. Um, all right. So it says we're going to read from to 13. So on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voice saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. So there's already a lot to kind of uncover in that. Um, the area between Samaria and Galilee is a bit of a no man's land, and it's also kind of a cultural and religious war zone. These two people groups absolutely hated each other. Um, one considered themselves the Jewish pure race, that was the Galileans, as well as Judea underneath Samaria. And the Samaritans had intermixed with Gentiles. And so if you're thinking about Harry Potter, they would be considered like the mudbloods. Um, and so there was a lot of prejudice against them. And they both saw the law differently. They both saw the Bible differently. Samaritans only took part of the Bible and left out the rest. They built their own temple. They both served in different areas. 
And so these two areas are, are just highly contested, and we're on kind of the outskirts of both of them in an unknown, unnamed village. But we know that there's lepers there. So in my mind, I'm thinking it's probably a leper colony or a leper village. Um, the places that were the center hub of society were considered pure and clean places that they could serve God. And then from outside of that, it slowly, they pushed all the impurity, including leprosy, out to the outskirts. And so that's where these lepers would reside. Um, hopefully I'm not coming out too loud. I don't know. I might start getting pretty yelly in here. You have to be cleansed in order to enter the temple. So these lepers, because of their leprosy, they were considered ceremonially unclean just because of this disease. Unclean means that you have sin or you have been affected by the sin. And because of God's righteous and pure character, he would reside in these holy places and those impurities would have to be away from him until they're dealt with. And so that's where the lepers would be. And you can imagine what being a leper is like. Um, leprosy is kind of an interesting term. It can cover a wide variety of things. In Leviticus 13, if you, I'm not going to read through all of that because it's a lot, but they, the law lays out a way to identify leprosy and to see whether it's something that is a disease or whether it's something that's just a surface line condition. Because leprosy could include ringworm, it can include psoriasis, leukoderma, as well as what we think of leprosy as, which is Hansen's disease. And illnesses such as smallpox, measles, and scarlet fever, those even showed up as leprosy at first, but then they would slowly go away. And so they would be, for a time, separated from the rest of the community until that naturally got healed. Um, but Hansen's disease is quite a bit worse than those. Here's a description of Hansen's disease from Alan L. Gillen in his book, Genesis of Germs. It says, its symptoms start in the skin and peripheral nervous system outside the brain and spinal cord. Then they spread to other parts, such as hands, feet, face, and earlobes. Patients with leprosy experience disfigurement of the skin and bones, twisting of the limbs, curling of the fingers to form the characteristic claw, hand. Facial changes include thickening of the outer ear and collapsing of the nose. Tumor-like growths called lepromas may form on the skin and in the respiratory tract, and the optic nerve may deteriorate. Sound like anything you guys would want to experience? No. Uh, it was a crippling condition. So if you had leprosy, if you were determined by the priest to have leprosy, then you would have to cover your mouths, and anytime you were near anyone, you would have to shout, unclean, unclean, and they would know that you had leprosy. So these lepers, they were by law commanded to live in complete isolation. They couldn't work, they couldn't see their family, and they just, in general, couldn't enjoy life. I don't know if this kind of, I think because of our COVID-19 pandemic that we've been through, we might be able to relate a little bit to what it felt like to be a leper, um, obviously to a le much lesser extent, I think. Imagine living the rest of your life in complete isolation, and the only people you have are other lepers to keep you company. But you probably relate to some of the hardship of this, of not seeing your family, of not being able to go to work, of not going to your favorite restaurants because of a disease. And so I hope that you guys can take that experience, whatever experience you've had with that, and maybe be able to relate to their desire to be healed. 
they want to go back to living their life. They want to see their family. They want to see their wife and their kids. And they want to be part of their religious community again. But they were hopeless. They were like the living dead. Uh, especially with Hansen's disease, it was something that wouldn't kill you instantly. You would live and your parts of your skin would start to deteriorate and fall off, but you would live until you died, but it'd be a very long and slow process. So they were hopeless. So in their hopelessness, they call out to Jesus. And they've heard that he's been able to heal a leper. In Luke 5, 12 through 15, we see that Jesus heals a leper. So no doubt they've heard about Jesus' power. And they use the term master. Jesus, master, have mercy on us. Master is used frequently in the book of Luke. It's usually used by the disciples to refer to Jesus. It means overseer or commander. So they're calling on Jesus' authority. So the next verse says, verse 14, when, Jesus, when he saw them, when Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Um, this is very interesting because Jesus, as most miracles happen, he kind of snaps his finger or touches them and that person is now clean. But Jesus seems to be kind of jumping the gun a little bit and not only are they being clean, as they went they were cleansed, but also they're now going to go see the priests, which is to verify that now they are clean. So Jesus goes, yeah, go show yourself to the priest. You are now clean. And as they, and just imagine that. You've been desiring to be healed for so, before I get into that, actually, let me explain what a priest is, in case you don't know. Why is a priest important? So I have a thing on the priest right here. What was a priest? The priest was a go-between or an intercessory between man and God. We talked a little earlier about how God was a pure being and how impurities couldn't be near him. The priest operated as that being that would ceremoniously cleanse himself in order to approach God. So it was necessary because of the holiness of God. Holiness means God is totally separate from fallen man and in a real sense, unapproachable. For this reason, God ordained that certain men who were ritually cleansed in a special way should approach him on behalf of the people. They would give sacrifice to God, which symbolically atoned or paid for the people's sin. And so Leviticus 14, it talks about what it looks like to go to a priest and what they would be checking for. And if they saw that you were then healed, it wasn't just a, all right, you're good to enter society again. They had a certain process that they had to do called offerings that they had to give to God. And in these, it, it details in Leviticus 14, again, way too long to go over, but I'll give you a brief summary of some of the things that they have to do. One of them is they have to collect two birds and they kill one and they set the other one free. Another one is they kill a lamb. This is called a guilt offering. And interesting enough, they take the blood of the lamb and they cover their right earlobe, they cover their right toe, and they cover the thumb on their right hand. Kind of weird. And it's an eight-day-long process of all these different offerings. And then they are considered clean. And then that sin is considered fully atoned for. So by Jesus sending them to the priest, they would now be receiving new life and comfort and family. So I don't know about you, but if I was walking on the way to the priest, and I'm probably like, I don't know why I'm going to the priest. I know I have leprosy. And then I'm looking down and my skin is healing and turning white with new flesh. 
And I know that ahead of me is the priest and this eight-day-long thing that I have to go through, but then I get to be reintroduced into society and to be with my family again. I imagine if I were in that position, I would start running to the priest. How many of you guys would say that that would probably be your reaction to this? Any hands? Man, you guys are so holy. Not that many hands. I think you guys read ahead a little bit or something. All right, let's look at what happens to one of them, though. Then one of them, in verse 15, then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. So what does the Samaritan do here? First of all, he turns around. That's a big thing. Because we just talked about how this priest is representing his family, his life, all everything that is going to be given back to him. He turns back and forsakes that and runs back to Jesus, instantly exalting God. You can imagine the emotion that this man has in this moment to do something so drastic as that. And he throws himself down on Jesus' feet. Jesus' feet, by the way, we think of Jesus as this pure, clean thing. Um, no, he's been walking all day in dirt and in mud and in feces. It's not a prettiest sight, but he throws himself down, his face at Jesus' feet, humbled before Jesus. It's quite a reaction. He was overjoyed, and he didn't care what anyone else thought. He exalted God loudly. This is an example of faith and true discipleship to Jesus. Let's go to Matthew 10, 37. Matthew 10, 37 says, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We also have another verse that talks about this. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17, it says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we see this principle that a true disciple of Jesus puts Jesus above everything else. It's not that you have to hate your father and mother to follow Jesus. No, it's that you love Jesus more. You prioritize Jesus more than anything else. Because being a follower of Christ, families get divided. And you have to make a choice sometimes as to whether who are you going to follow? Who do you love more? So being a disciple of Jesus, you're forsaking all of those things because you see Jesus as the better gift. That's what we see in the Samaritan. Why mention that he's a Samaritan? Um, I had to think about this for a very long time, and I'm not quite sure, but I think because the Samaritan is, in the Jewish eye, considered doubly unclean. 
The only reason that the other lepers, who we can assume would be Jewish based on Jesus' reaction, the only reason they would be near him is because they're already considered unclean. And so they're kind of all unclean together. But I imagine as they're walking and suddenly they're clean, imagine they probably start distancing themselves from the Samaritan, concerned that he's going to pollute their cleanliness because they saw him in a very prejudiced way, in a very hateful way, as unclean before God. In the Jewish mind, the worst thing you could call someone was a Samaritan. They call, there's a verse where they call Jesus a Samaritan, and then they ask, is he possessed? That's, <laughs> that's how they thought of the Samaritans. So I think because of that, you have, I mean, just think about this. What was the first thing that Jesus did? What was the first thing that Jesus did, Jesus did in this verse? The first thing he did is he saw them. For a Samaritan leper, I think being seen and noticed by a Jewish rabbi, Jesus at the time, was a miracle in itself. And then for him to heal you, I think if it was a normal Jewish rabbi, he would have healed the Jews. The Samaritans are already unclean. They wouldn't do that for him. So I think because he had more to gain, he had more to be thankful for. He knew he was completely undeserving of it. I think he felt Jesus' kindness and love for him. That was completely unexpected. And in doing so, in approaching Christ, you think, well, he didn't go to the priest. That's what Jesus said to do. No, but interestingly enough, he does because Jesus is the greatest priest. Jesus is the one that makes that perfect connection between us and God. He's the one that makes the way for us, right? So in a way, he actually did go to the priest, the better priest, the better way. And it says that he was saved. In the verse, it says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. That phrase, made you well, is coming off of the Greek word sozo, which means to save. So Jesus is doing a little bit of wordplay here. Not only is he physically healed, now he's also spiritually healed. That's not said about the other nine. So what about the nine? I keep trying to think, why did the nine not thank Jesus? How did they not get what was happening here? And I can relate to the idea of wanting to run to the priest, but why is it that Jesus expects them not to? Because Jesus points out that they didn't return to thank him, and even though the expectation would be that they would, because they're the Jewish people looking for the Messiah, and here he is. The reason they should know that he's the Messiah is because that whole part about um, going to the priest and verifying that you've been healed of leprosy, that never happened of someone, of a rabbi healing someone of leprosy. It was always up to God whether or not someone would receive leprosy and whether that would be taken away from them. A rabbi had no power over that. Rabbis considered healing someone of leprosy as second to raising them from the dead. It was like we talked about it, it was like a living dead. So these Jewish nine, when this guy just cleans them a leprosy like that, that should have clicked into them. And we know that this is a Messiah thing. Messiah means that it's what the Jewish people were waiting for, the return of their king, right? That's something that scriptures have prophesied about. They should have known very well to look for him. We know that this is a clear sign because in Matthew eleven three six, 6, let's see right here. Um, John the Baptist sends a servant to talk to Jesus and ask if he's the Messiah. 
And this is what happens. And he said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. And the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up. And the poor have good news preached to them. He mentions cleansing lepers as part of the reasons why he is the one. He is the Messiah. You wouldn't see this happening in other, any other way. He had to be connected to God. And so you think just how is it that they know about the law? They know to look for the Messiah. How is it they miss him when he's right in front of them? I think Romans 121 is a good example of this. In Romans 121 it says, For although they knew God, they did not come, they did not, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. I can't judge the nine lepers. I don't know what was going on in their hearts, but that's what I'm speculating. So I have a question for you guys. Who are you in the story? Are you one of the nine who has received the blessings but somehow completely forgot to give thanks to God for them? Or are you the one that has surrendered himself to God and who exalts his name in thanksgiving? I think most of us in this room can relate to the Samaritan leper. Most of us have had this moment that's like that, where we have thrown our face down at the feet of Jesus. We are completely humbled, and that we are overjoyed in thanksgiving and exaltation of God. I remember my moment, and before I get into that, I gotta take a sip of water. I grew up in a Christian household. Um, I was blessed with lovely parents who were Christians. But I remember going to Sunday school, and they kept talking about how Jesus loves you and died for your sins. And I was like, that's cool. Um, my parents love me. Uh, my dog loves me. Uh, my brothers love me. They bully me a lot, so they don't know how to show it very well. But they, I know deep down, somewhere, they do. <laughs> I felt very loved. Why? Of course. Of course God would love me. I'm a good kid. I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not a murderer, for goodness sake. Why wouldn't God love me? Why wouldn't Jesus accept me? Why wouldn't I go to heaven? I thought I was fine. And I remember one day, I was, my parents were doing a Bible study, and they were doing this um, series called The Way of the Master. And it was with Ray Comfort and, and someone else, and they were teaching about how to evangelize, how to talk to people about the gospel. And I was so convinced I was a Christian, I'm sitting there like taking notes, like, okay, cool, like this is what you talked to him about, here's the gospel. And then I realized, like, oh, I don't know the gospel. The gospel isn't just that Jesus loves you and died for you. What I needed to hear was that I had a spiritual leprosy. I had what I thought was just this small mark of sin, easily forgivable. But actually, in God's eyes, it was corrupting my entire being. And God is this pure God that could be nowhere near that. That has to be dealt with. Something has to take that on. And so he could justly and deservedly reject me, even though I felt like I was a good person. That's when I realized the grace of Jesus loves you and he died for your sins. Because I realized he didn't have to do that. God wouldn't be evil for rejecting me. 
I'm the one that's evil in this situation. I'm the one that's rebelled. And that made me eternally thankful for Jesus. That phrase suddenly meant a lot to me. And I kind of had this leper moment. I remember praying. I remember (laughs) crying out to God. I remember that next Sunday, I'm in Sunday school and I'm just like a fifth grader and I'm on fire to tell my friends like, hey guys, like ignore the crafts, like listen. (laughs) This is a big deal. (laughs) There's a lot happening here. I was afraid, I'm like, you got to listen to it now because I know you guys don't care about church and you're only coming because your parents are making you, but like, please get this. I remember exalting God in that. So I want to ask you a question. Do you remember your moment? Has there been a part in your life where God has met you with the gospel that has looked like this exaltation and this thanksgiving and this pouring out to him in love? Do you know how much God loves you? Do you know what Jesus died for you means? Because I had a friend, I won't give a name, and she had been raised in the same school as us. She was a private Christian school. She had Christian parents. She went to a Christian church. She became a youth leader of that church. And everyone thought she was good. She was just like the rest of us. And then I see her at a wedding one year, like a year after she stopped being a youth leader, she went off to college. And I start talking to her about things and I'm assuming that she's a Christian, that she's getting these things and she wasn't. She was actually getting kind of offended. And I was like, what, what's going on? She's like, I don't, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Like, I don't, I, I don't think any of that's true. And I remember just asking her, I was like, wait, so you're telling me that you never had a moment where this was real to you, where Jesus meant something to you, where you were thankful, where you gave your life to him? That never happened? You never got it? It never clicked? Our pastor always called it an aha moment. You never had an aha moment. And she said no. And that was shocking to me, to have someone be so close and to receive all the blessings of growing up in a Christian household, of growing up in a Christian school, of being part of the church, of being part of that culture, and never seeing Jesus, never seeing what it was all pointing towards, completely missing it. And I think... She was like the nine. She wanted the goodness of those blessings. She wanted to be a part of it, but never saw or appreciated the goodness of the God who gave that blessing. She didn't have faith like the Samaritan of it being real, of Jesus being God. She didn't take a moment to count what these blessings were all about, what the goodness of being in a Christian community was, and count and trace to the God that gave that the God that was the source of that goodness, and to be thankful to him. Instead, she was swept up in church culture, and she missed the point. We all have to have a moment where we acknowledge that Jesus is God, because he is the only way between us and God. We have to have a moment where we acknowledge that we are not a good person, that our heart is plagued, with a spiritual leprosy that we are hopeless to fight against. I wonder if the same thing had happened to the nine. I wonder if they went back to the priests, they got that blood 
of the lamb that they had put on their ear and on their thumb and on their toe. I wonder if maybe they saw Jesus outside of Jerusalem at Golgotha. Hung on a cross. Maybe then they would have realized that it wasn't this blood that was atoning their sins, it was his. That this was pointing towards him. This law they were following was pointing towards Jesus. Maybe they realized that he was the priest they were supposed to go to. He was the one that made a way for them to be clean and accepted by God. I hope that at some point they finally saw Jesus. They looked back and went, oh, that was God. The same way I hope that my friend will once someday. Just like I hope that if there's anyone in this room who doesn't know the love and grace in Christ, I want to tell you that God sees you. He knows you. He doesn't care about your past. He doesn't care if you're unclean and undeserving. He still loves you. He still died for you. He took all the guilt and shame that you bear on your shoulders every day. He took that with him on the cross and he put it to death. He bled so that way you might be cleansed and free to be with him. You have access to Jesus right now. He is in front of you because of what he did on the cross. And like I asked in the beginning, what will you say to him? Will you confess that you are a sinner, that you are hopeless? That this small spot of skin that you thought, sin that you thought was just nothing, that it was actually a disease that was running through you that you were hopeless to fight against and that you need him to help you with? Are you going to claim him as the Lord of your life? Are you going to put him above everything else? Are you going to see the true and good gift that he is, that he is better, that he is the source of all the goodness of that, but he is better than all of that? Will you exalt him? Will you thank him? For those of us who have already given our lives to Jesus, I think it's important that we remember that source of our blessings. So what does that mean? I want you to think about anything in this world that has been good to you. Maybe it's your friends or your family or food or your job or anything. Think about the people that encouraged you and believed in you and meant something to you and helped you along the way. Think about those moments where God answered your prayer. Those moments where you had nothing and yet God made a way for you through his provision. I want us to count those things in our mind, to remember those things, to hold on to them. Because faith is being thankful and exalting God for that. So are we, how can we be more thankful? What blessings of God might we be putting above Jesus? We take a moment, twice a month here at Grace Hills, to remember God's greatest gift to us, the source of our salvation. We call this communion. Communion is a time where we think about that blood that Jesus offered for us to cleanse us of our sins, where we remember and we count that blessing. The greatest gift of all of it is salvation. That he offered that up for us, that he had his body broken for our sins. So as believers, 
I want you to just take a moment with him right now. Come up when you feel led. I'm going to pray for us. You can come up and you can grab the communion on both sides. And I just want you to sit and just talk to God. Ask him what you can be more thankful for. Ask him how you can exalt him. Think about the blessings in your life. Count them. Remember them. Let it, just like the Samaritan, let it overflow into your exaltation of God. What will you say to Jesus in this time? Are you thankful? If you're new and you have any questions about any of this, you can come and ask us and talk to us about it. Me or Simon. I'm going to pray for us. Jesus, thank you for being our high priest. Thank you for choosing to make a way between us and God. Thank you for taking our impurity on yourself. Thank you for taking our shame and our guilt away from us. Thank you that you cover us in your sacrifice, Lord. I pray that the blessings of our life, the ability to go to church and to pray to you and to be part of this, Lord, I pray that we would always remember, we would always look back to what all of this comes from. It comes from you. And we would be lost and hopeless without your death and resurrection, Lord. I pray that as we remember that, that you would fill our hearts with exaltation and worship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.